Welcome back, Intimates. I'm excited to find you experts to talk about love, connection, non-monogamy, polyamory, relationship anarchy, group sex, kink, commitment, and lots of other intimacy and relationship topics. Let's live our best lives together by unlearning stigma and getting clear on what we really want. Don't know what to ask for? I have loads of ideas for you. Of course, none of this would be possible without the support of my amazing Patreon supporters or my current hosts, the Musqueam First Nation on whose unceded lands this podcast was made and this human was born. If you want to support more intimate interactions, you can say thank you by supporting us on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. Patreon supporters also get every episode of the podcast ad-free with short intros and outros. I know funds are not an option for some of you lovely humans, but don't fret, there are other ways you can help out. You can help make more intimate interactions by just telling someone you listen to this podcast. Or if you're feeling especially generous, you can share a link to an episode you like and discuss it with a friend or partner, or even leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting site. Help other humans interested in more intimacy and better relationships find us. If you have your own podcast, shout us out. Need a podcast guest? Email offers to podcast at victorsalmon.com. I love talking about relationships and intimacy, and I love cross-promotion and working with other podcasters. Okay, let's hear about today's episode. There's a fascinating distinction between the way we see ourselves and the way others see us. Those might be the same, they might be radically different. For public-facing folks like myself or Jet Noir, it might be intentional that we try and show off part of who we are for the sake of making art or constructing a performance, or for any other number of reasons or pressures. I love events like burlesque and the related but quite different events um, that fall into the drag category. They often have something valuable to say about sex, sexuality, and identity. What that is, I think, differs by performer, by act, and even by the audience member experiencing it. I encourage you to experience both burlesque and drag for different reasons, but the reason I think they both have in common is you will possibly learn a lot about other people if you don't know already, and you might even learn something about yourself. My guest today is Jet Noir, a black, cisgendered, non-monogamous, pansexual, burlesque performer and sex educator from the Bay Area. This was recorded on April 12th on day 27 of self-isolation for him during the COVID-19 crisis. Welcome everyone to another session of Intimate Interactions. I'm here with my guest, Jet Noir, a black, cisgender, pansexual, burlesque performer and sex educator who is a guest today calling in from day 27 of isolation from his studio in the Bay Area. How are you doing, Jet? I'm doing well, Victor. How are you? I'm doing okay. I feel like it's uh, it's a beautifully and uncommonly sunny day in Vancouver, BC. Um, the unceded territories of the Musqueam First Nation. I'm currently um, calling from my space, from my house. Um, well, I don't own a house. I'm in an apartment and I don't own it. <laughs> from my rental apartment in Richmond, British Columbia, which is also Musqueam. Huh. So I'm super interested to get into talking about um, burlesque identity and perception. How did you first get into burlesque? I first got into burlesque as a, an arts model. Uh, I was okay. working with Dr. Sketchies, which started out of New York, uh, but they have locations all over the world. Well, not locations, it was sort of events, I should say, all around the world. And what Dr. Sketchies does is they often will work with burlesque performers and they will come to a bar and they will, you know, you know put on some sort of uh, scantily clad costume situation and pose for people who are sketch artists and trying to hone the craft. 
And so Howdy. I got involved with them back when I lived in San Diego. And because they often work with burlesque performers, I became friends with a number of burlesque performers. And uh, most notably, Lady Borgia and uh, Minx Demeanor. Mm. And when I moved up to the Bay Area, uh, Minx asked if I could help her out with an act, just sort of being like a living prop during one of her acts. And so mm -hmm. I said yes, didn't think twice about it. And about a month after I was in town, I was head shaved, body painted gold, and I was an Oscar in her act. <laughs> that was that was in March of 2010. Okay, so that progressed fairly quickly for you then. Yeah, well, for me, it was, uh, I felt so much love and fellowship from everyone backstage. No one, no one came at me like, oh, you're not supposed to be here. You're some new person. Get out of here. No one was like that. Everyone was very welcoming. And right. because of that, I just kind of never left. And so I've done a lot over the years is like whether being a stage hand, stage manager, producer, MC, a lot of stuff, but I've just, I've just always felt welcome in the community. That's great. So that's, I guess that's how you first got into burlesque. What is burlesque to you and why is it important? Um, Burlesque to me is a, you know, this marginalized form of self-expression. And I say marginalized because there are, there are a lot of people that have still never been to a burlesque show. So, you know, it's not necessarily mainstream. However, if you are in mm -hmm. the burlesque industry, then it feels mainstream because you know about when all the shows are happening. Right. Uh, it is it's important to me because I grew up in Detroit and most of the people I grew up with don't know what I do because I, I don't even want to manage what goes along with trying to explain it to them, trying to mm -hmm. explain to them, you know, uh, me, you know, putting on makeup and, and heels and these elaborate, ridiculous costumes and things like that. And, mm -hmm explaining to them that this is a form of self-expression and I'm, and I'm enjoying it. And my hope is that people in the audience enjoy it, but it's important because I want, I want some, I, I, let me, let me back up. I would have loved if when I was a kid, if I saw someone that looked like me on stage, because mm. it let me know that, Hey, it's okay to be a weirdo. Mm-hmm. Or, or even like, hey, it's okay to be sexy and to, to show that off and to be seen. You know what's funny about that is I actually have a personal rule when it comes to performing, which is never try to be sexy. And Ooh, I like that. So I never, um, whenever I'm on stage, no matter what feedback I may get from people, I never go out there trying to be sexy. And when I'm actually out there, I'm not thinking of what I'm doing as sexy. I'm just... I think of it more like I'm out here to tell a story. And as long as I know what that story is and I, and I hopefully do a compelling job of telling that story, then, then, you know, that's my hope. That's fascinating. Like I, when I think about the shows that I've gone to that are burlesque, there is like the, the shows that I've seen where performers are expressing some sort of pent up, um, 
or or otherwise maybe hidden or not um, sexiness or like a celebration of themselves, their bodies, their identities, etc. But the ones that really take my breath away are the ones that feel more like performance or like a story. So it's it's so neat to hear you saying that. So I guess this sort of leads us pretty naturally to um, what function burlesque serves in society. Do you feel like it has a specific function? The short answer is yes. Um, But I think it depends on the type of burlesque. Mm. We get to the, when we get to the root of burlesque, uh, burlesque by definition is a grotesque parody. So it's been around for hundreds of years and I think the purpose that it has always served in society and should always serve is making making light of these, you know, serious things. You know, so while while we may not be able to go to a live show currently during the pandemic, mm-hmm. afterwards I can I can imagine how many uh, pandemic themed stories that we're going to see in burlesque performances. And, and, right. and we're going to need to laugh at that. We're going to need to see this ridiculousness that somewhat, some, um, some, some way that someone has put a, a cool spin on it. And, and in the process, you know, this person up on stage uh, is also going to be teasing us, you know, going through a strip tease and making us laugh. And so that sort of that relief is, is what we're going to need as a society after we after we are on the other side of this paradigm shift that we're experiencing right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we could talk a lot even just about that of changes in society and how it's changed and getting quote unquote getting back to normal, um, whatever that means. Right. <laughs> we could talk about that a long time, but sticking with the burlesque theme, um, how does your identity as a burlesque performer relate to dating in your dating life? You know, I feel like, you know, take away the costumes and I'm still the same person on or off stage. Mm -hmm. Uh, But sometimes what happens is I I will experience tourists in my dating life where I can tell that they're sort of, they're sort of drawn to this stage persona. And I can tell that they kind of are around for that reason. They're kind of dating me for that reason. And I don't really feel seen as an as a human being, and it's difficult mm-hmm. to explain, you know, how I recognize that or what that feels like. But I I can say that I've experienced it long enough, often enough, to know that yeah, this person is is kind of here just as tourism, as curiosity, not necessarily because they want to date me as a person. Yeah, that sounds pretty uncomfortable. Yeah. So you mentioned the word sexpectations in our preamble, and I was curious if you could sort of define it and explain how you use it. Uh, I often use it to... I want to be very clear whenever I am uh, dating someone that mm-hmm. I actually... That, that I'm not a tourist, that I'm not, you know, just there to, you know, uh, play along and sit through a few dates until we can have sex or anything, you know, like that. Instead, I'd rather just communicate to them, hey, 
I would like to, you know, maybe it's like our second or third date or something like that. And it's like we're going out for dinner. Like, hey, I'd love to, you know, come over to your house and make you dinner with most expectations. Right. And, and I feel like in framing it in, in that way, I'm being very clear and proactive with my communication about, uh, no, I really just want to make dinner. And that's really it. Yeah, absolutely. Like when I say Netflix and chill, I really mean I just want to relax and watch some Netflix. Right, right, exactly. Cool. So talking about um, using the word expectations as a way to set expectations around sex, um, how do you manage other expectations? Um, Yeah, just that other people have of you in relationships. Uh, For me, it always comes back to proactive communication, something that I got in the habit of doing uh, probably about four years ago was um, maybe three years ago on a first date. I just there's so many you hear all these stories where people are saying, oh, don't or say too much on the first date. Don't reveal too much on the first. I'm like, no, I'm the exact opposite. I'm going to say, hey, here's some things that that are not going to change about me. Uh, right. I am I am a sex worker. Uh, I am a burlesque performer. Those are two different things, by the way. I want to go on record as saying that burlesque is not sex work. Right. Because so, um, some people get that confused, and I find that the people that get that confused are people who have never done sex work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I would believe that. Yeah. And so, so I'm a sex worker. I'm a burlesque performer. Um, you know, I enjoy cannabis. You know, uh, I have two cats, things like that. I want to tell people right away because uh, if someone is allergic to cats, if someone has sort of a traumatic history surrounding marijuana, or if someone views me, my being a sex, work, a sex worker as a deal breaker, if any of those things are going to happen, uh, then I'd rather know right away. And, and so Absolutely. the way that I manage their expectations is by putting everything on the table in the beginning and just being super clear and if they're like, oh, well, that's not going to work for me, I'm like, okay, cool, we'll be friends. Or maybe we won't. But either way, everyone knows what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely support that. I'm a huge fan of front-loading communication in relationships and doing as much as I can to sort of nip those problems in the bud in the same sort of way that you just described. I'm curious to sort of circle back and maybe expand more on the points you talked about earlier when you were mentioning um, what you would have given just to have, just to be able to see people like yourself. Um, I'm curious um, because of the way that you mentioned that blackness is important in your identity. If you wanted to talk a little bit about how black, how blackness relates to that point. Well, in, I may have mentioned this before, but I I grew up in Detroit and, and I grew up in, I grew up in Detroit in a time where there were, I met three, a grand total of three people that were not black. (laughs) Wow. Like, and I'm talking about in my neighborhood, in my high school, and my high school had 3,000 kids, just to wrap your head around that, okay? So, So, in the black community in the 80s and 90s, uh, and I feel like this happens with a lot of communities. Everything mm-hmm. was, this is what we do as black people or as black men and any deviation from that. And you are weird. You were, mm-hmm. you know, pushed out, shunned somewhere, some, something like that. And so there was no room 
for elaborate self-expression. I remember mm. around the time that Dennis Rodman first started dyeing his hair and getting tattoos and things like that. And, yep. and it was like everyone that loved him one minute, hated him the next. And I was like, look, I'm not saying that I'm the guy's best friend, but why you, I think it's important for people to examine why are you, why are you now opposed to him? Because he's expressing himself. He's living his life, you know? And so mm-hmm. I feel it's important for young black men to see a spectrum of masculinity, to understand that it's not as simple as, oh, well, being a man means, you know, putting on boots, going to work, fishing on weekends, shit like that. That's not, <laughs> it's not as simple as that. Right. Um, there's a full spectrum of masculinity and it's not really any, any one person or one group's place to say what masculine is or is not for someone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So something else I want to circle back to, um, you were asking about burlesque and dating and, and, you know, the, the sort of existence between the two, something that, that has happened for me has been when someone knows that I'm a burlesque performer before we have a chance to like get down and like meet each other and just, you know, sit and have a coffee or something like that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they will, um, they'll be reluctant to date me because of my burlesque performance. And what I've heard some people say is, uh, Oh, well I couldn't date you because you spend all of that time backstage with all of those beautiful women. Huh? And I've, I found that so interesting because I'm like, what do you think we do backstage? Because we, we don't do anything. We, we talk about cookie recipes and like the best ways to get pasties to stay on your nipples. And you Mm -hmm. know, but nothing about our conversation is sexual. And mm-hmm. if it was sexual, then that doesn't mean that we are backstage having orgies. We're, we're backstage working, you know, we're getting yep. ready to perform or getting ready to go home or something like that. Uh, so that, that's, a, that's something that comes up and is interesting. And the, the other thing is that because, um, because for the most part, I am heterosexual presenting, People just kind mm-hmm. of make this assumption. Um, there have been a number of duets, burlesque duets, that have never happened. Because, you know, I will, someone who I think is a great dancer, mm-hmm. I will start, start a conversation about possibly doing a duet together. But because this person is an attractive woman with a partner who is usually a a cisgender heterosexual man will say, mm-hmm. no, I don't want you rehearsing alone with Jet. Of course. And and it and that's so funny to me on, on, a, on a number of levels. Um, number one, it's funny to me because most often those men have never met me and they've never had a conversation with me. We've never like sat and had a sandwich together. And so, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're basing this on my stage persona. Right. I'm like, yeah, you don't, you don't know me. And the other reason I find it funny is because even if, just for the sake of argument, even if I did want to have sex with their partner, then at best, that is 50% my decision. 
Right. You know what I mean? That, that's that's at best. So it's still so what they're essentially saying is that either they don't trust their partner, uh, or they think that I'm going to be this brutish asshole that's going to you know overstep a boundary. Sure. Or or be coercive in some way or something like that. Right. Right. Yeah, it's, I mean, as much as we try not to be offended by the monogamous and the, the ways that they sort of um, possess each other, for lack of a better word, um, it, is, it is almost offensive. It's like, just dig down to what you're actually saying about your partner and about me. Like, it's, it's a strictly professional work relationship, and it's, it's so threatening that we can't do this cool collab we were both excited about. Yeah. I, I, I try to avoid, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to like poo poo monogamy culture, uh, because I understand that when it comes to monogamy or polyamory, it is, it's a choice. Mm-hmm. I'm not those insufferable people that says, you know, this is better than that when it comes to dating is really sure. a matter of choice and what works for the individual or the, the people involved. Sure. Um, and, and that, that's key, not just the individual, but the people involved, because if one person is like, hey, let's open up our relationship and the other person is hardcore monogamous, then they it's not going to go well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but yeah, so I don't want to I don't want to poo poo on monogamy culture. But you're right. There is a sort of like possessiveness and um, there's this toxic thing that tends to happen where I've had a lot of friends over the years who uh they're just platonic friends and they're also they also may happen to be attractive women Mm -hmm. but then what happens is as long as they're single we are seeing each other we're talking to each other we're connecting on a regular basis all platonically and then Mm -hmm. they'll start dating someone and they'll just drop off the face of the earth and i'm like hey i haven't heard from you in weeks what's going on and right. in some cases, they feel as if, oh, well, I've you know found the one, so I'm just going to focus all my energy here. And I'm like, that's great, but you know that person for a week. And in some cases, it's like they will, um, they will feel as if their partner is saying to them, I don't want you to be friends with any, any other men. And in some cases, the partner will outright say that. In some cases, they'll just sort of create that story in their head. And, and right. with that, you know, but I, right. I, either way, it's always kind of heartbreaking because I'm like, hey, we've been friends for years. And now all of a sudden you just kind of disappeared because you're dating this new guy. Yeah, it's almost like there's this there's this weird stereotype that men don't need emotional intimacy or don't value platonic intimacy with people. And it's I personally think it's garbage needs to be lit on fire. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I love like I wish happy Valentine's day to my friends, you know, I'll just, I'll send Mm -hmm. them like these platonic Valentine's like, Hey, happy Valentine's day. I'm sending you all the platonic love I have and so on and so forth. And that goes back to what I was saying about practice communication. I use the word platonic often because I don't want anyone to, if we've been platonic friends for years and, and we've just been honest with each other that we both find each other attractive. I'm not going out of the blue start sending Valentine's without being clear that yes, this is still coming from a platonic place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is, there is a lot of assumption and, and scripting that can go into any kind of cookie cutter relationship. And because monogamy is sort of the default sort of setting, 
um, we have a lot of scripts and, and defaults for it of, of how monogamy should look or how it should go. I also don't think there's anything wrong whatsoever with monogamy. And when I say um, that there's a way that monogamous folks tend to possess each other, I mean in like not pre-negotiated ways, because by definition, monogamy is sexual exclusivity, at least colloquially that's how we use the term monogamy most often in society but there's also this additional idea of emotional intimacy and that this quote-unquote the one or um, your primary partner however you want to frame it that this person should be top of the heap the person that you share not just sex with but then there are all of these other ads like also they have to be the person that you're you know, financially um, intermingled with, or they have to be the person you're living with, or they have to be the person that you have the most emotional intimacy with. And any friendship that's more emotionally intimate than that, that one relationship is now somehow a threat to that relationship, even if that person or those people have no interest in that person sexually whatsoever. So it kind of comes down to like, in what ways are those people practicing monogamy? And are they assuming they're practicing monogamy like that? Or have they had a conversation about it? Yeah, and the, the assumption can be really dangerous because um, there's something I refer to, and, th and this is something that this happens in both uh, monogamy and polyamory culture, where mm -hmm. it's what I call the relationship by default, where people will, they go on a number of dates, and they decide that they, they like dating each other, they like having sex together, they like uh, talking to each other, and then one of them just starts referring to the other as my partner. And no one mm -hmm. has taken time to sit down and have a conversation about, hey, let's talk about what partner means to you and what it means to me. Let's make sure we're on the same page. And let's have a conversation about, you know, uh, what our boundaries and our pleasures look like in the confines of a romantic relationship. Mm -hmm. and, and because those conversations don't happen, then uh, a lot of assumption is made. And then all of a sudden people are like, well, that person did this thing and it really upset me. And I'm like, well, did they know that that was going to upset you or did both of you just assume and now here we are? Right. Yeah, conversations, it comes back to that that critical idea of, of I think, front-loading relationships with, but really it doesn't matter when you do it, just as long as you have the conversation and you're a little clearer. Totally. I personally practice relationship anarchy, which is a, a flavor of non-monogamy that's very that's somewhat similar to polyamory, except it tends to come with fewer labels and more conversations. And for a lot of folks, polyamory is already so many more conversations than they're used to having in the default world that the thought of having any more conversations about labels and their assumptions and what they mean and that that is sometimes overwhelming for folks. And I respect that. I respect her as well. I also uh, I also find it kind of interesting because in in monogamy culture, in heteronormative monogamy culture, what tends to happen mm -hmm. is, um, and, and this is a full stereotype. Um, sure, you know the, the the man is reluctant to have a conversation about feelings, uh, and the woman often wants to initiate those conversations, and. What I find is that I often turn that on its head and, you know, someone's like, and I'm like, hey, let's talk about our feelings again, you know? <laughs> and right. Ah. But uh, they, they, they may groan about it, but of course it's, it's still a welcome conversation because no one, I don't want anyone that I'm interacting with to have any guesswork to do about 
you know, um, where we are, who we are to each other, any of that. Right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm comfortable with uncertainty. Like I'm comfortable not knowing, but I don't, I do my very best not to make assumptions so that when someone says, Oh, why did you assume that? Or like, that's not how I feel at all. I'm like more pleasantly surprised and curious than I am like shocked or afraid. Right. Just because I, I've done my very best not to lock myself into this sense of false security of, oh, well, I know who this person is. This person is this idea I have of them. Like, I, I do my very best to allow people to live and grow their own, li- their own lives and experiences in my mental image of them. So there's just a lot of question marks around people in my head in a very, like, and I'm still sure this person isn't going to deliberately hurt me. Like, I still believe we have the same value set. Right. And I, and I tend to do that a lot, frame my relationships around values and principles rather than specific rules. Cause if someone is doing their very best to adhere to a rule and they, you know, they forget to inform me about something and we're just about to go have fun, sexy times. So they're like, Oh shoot. I forgot to tell you on Saturday that date actually did turn into this thing. Um, it's like, Oh, okay, cool. Like you, you told me before I, I like absolutely needed to know in the sense of like giving my informed consent. And if the person honestly forgot and we had sex and then they told me afterwards, but it wasn't out of the ordinary for our relationship, I'd be like, okay, that's, that's pretty unfortunate. Not best practices. Let's try to avoid it. But yeah, it's not the end of the world. Right. It's like, you could have told me two hours ago, or you can tell me now. And two hours ago, I still would have slept with you. But keep in mind, that's a very, very dangerous road. It is. Yeah. So it's like, I try and have leniency and compassion for people when they genuinely forget stuff. So long as they're adhering to the principles and we share the same values. But if you don't have a conversation about values and principles um, and someone breaks a rule, you don't really have anything to fall back on. You just have that rule. And that rule is the trust that builds like your intimacy and your relationship. It's what facilitates the whole thing. And suddenly your trust is broken. That can be a really big deal. Yeah, and, and I, I think that, um, very good point, and I think that when it comes to, I agree with you about making it about uh, principles and values as opposed to these very specific bullet points, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, we're human beings, and we yeah. can't, it, I, I don't think it's fair, no matter what the, how the two people, two or more people define the relationship, for any one person to set a rule for another, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, so as far as principles, then I, I'll, I will give these overarching examples like, Oh, well for me, I, I find it kind of frustrating to, to deal with or interact with when someone who is a, a romantic partner of mine, not of not of mine, like I possess them, but just someone who I'm in a romantic partnership with. I should say. Sure, sure. Um, I want to circle back to this, but I'm not a fan of the word "mine" in relation to a person. I'll circle mm-hmm. back to that. Uh, but I will say something like, "Okay, well, it's important to me that you consider the ripple effects of your actions. You know, not not just." in regard to me, but to anyone that you're dealing with, if you're doing a thing and you're not stopping to think, okay, what could be the potential fallout? If you're not thinking about that, 
then I feel like that's reckless and irresponsible. And that's one of those principles and values that I'll talk about as opposed to, you know, giving someone a rule because I don't really think I have that authority over anyone's life to give someone a rule. Mm-hmm. Uh, so real quick story about my first date and why, um, well, I'll save that story for another time, but I will say this when it, comes to, <laughs> well, cause I, I realized that, you know, we, we do have like a lot of other stuff to talk about, but, um, that's cool. Honestly, if you want to, if you want to go into, um, a story, you should just tell the story and then we can, it's, it's fine. Like we're not pressed for time. Don't worry about that. Okay. Um, on my first date, I was like sixth grade and I, we were going to the roller rink as like our trip for the end of the year. That's adorable. And I called my crush and I said, Hey, is it okay if I buy you a, a slice and a Coke? You know, she said, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I went and I like got a new Batman t-shirt and everything and did the whole bit. And so we held hands and skated around the roller rink and we, you know, did the pizza and Coke and that whole bit. And as we we're lining up to leave, my seventh graders came in who had been on the trip the year before, so they knew we were going to be there. And this one kid grabs the girl that I was on a date with, and he, um, and as he's walking out, he like gets all in my face, and he says, "So, and it, this is really funny considering that we're like, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old." Right. He says, um, "This is my woman," or something like that. And right. The two thing, the three things that I, I took that I remember from that experience, she ended up leaving with him. But the three things I remember were one, how close he was to me; two, the look on her face. She was just kind of looking at the ground and not really responding. And then the word "my," mm-hmm. his use of the word "my" stuck with me so much because I was like, "She's a person; she doesn't belong to you." Right. And. So ever since then, I've never, ever used my or mine in, rela- in regards to anyone that I'm, I'm dating, no matter, how, no matter how our relationship may be defined, even if we live together, any of that, then no, this person is not mine. They are mm-hmm. yours. And I'm grateful, that, I'm grateful for any part of themselves that they share with me, mm-hmm. for any time that we share together. But, mm-hmm. um, and I also don't believe that that person is my better half or any of that nonsense. They are, right. they are themselves. Yeah. It's, it's not like I'm half a person until I meet someone. Right. Yeah. That, that resonates. Um, for me, when I was sort of figuring out that I, that I wasn't monogamous and, and what I mean by that is that I never identified as monogamous. I was a practicing monogamous person for, for five, six years, never cheated on anyone. Um, in, unless you count looking at pornography as cheating, which one of my partners did. So in that sense, I guess technically I did cheat on someone. However, <laughs> wow. yeah, yep. It is what it is. Um, look at me today. Yeah. Not um, but <laughs> I, 
I, I feel like it would be disingenuous to to say I never cheated on someone and be like, well, with but with the asterisk, because yeah. I think I think she would disagree in the sense that I did look at pornography anyways. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the TLDR of that is like anyone can practice monogamy just like anyone can practice polyamory, I think, um, especially with the right training and skills. And from birth, we're conditioned to practice monogamy like we get all those skills. Um, but what it comes down to is like, what makes your heart sing? And I mean, I say this as a, as a kinkster that's practiced owner property relationships where, where someone says they really have a deep desire to feel owned, um, for the sake of having a place. And I think with a great deal of consideration of historical context and consent and a person's not just like cultural historical context, which is very significant to that conversation, um, but also just historical context of the person like why do they want to be owned and to what extent is that going to serve and benefit them i i say this as a person with that kind of a of a history of thinking about owner property like monogamy is a subset of owner property especially if we talk about monogamous marriage because we're talking about a selective form of ownership where we own each other's sexual expression to some limited amount and there's this idea that we can legally cement this ownership and that that is a sexy thing. But the same people that would practice that sort of relationship that has elements of owner property in it, even though there is an attempt to make it as symmetrical as possible, where both, at least by today's current lens, because obviously in the 50s it wasn't symmetrical um, and throughout many other time periods, they would they would take that same idea and say oh but all the kinksters practicing owner property like that's that's terrible but but monogamous marriage that's that's totally fine yeah i just find that really interesting i do because it's um you know whenever people view something as subversive then they immediately Mm -hmm. want to you know lay this lay this uh moral judgment on it and and decide for other people if it's right or wrong and They'll they'll do that without examining themselves mm-hmm. or their their situation, and 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 that's what I mean whenever I talk about how uh, I, I often talk about how no one cares about your body, and what I mean by that is uh, I used to be a body image coach, and I would say that to people about how yes, that person may have said a mean thing about your body, but in actuality, they don't care about your body because. That mean thing they said is stemming from an insecurity about their own body. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I feel the same thing happens when people are critical of other people's relationships. You know, if there's mm. some insecurity that you feel or are experiencing about your own relationship dynamic, then there's a strong chance that that's the thing that you're going to speak out against what other people are doing. Absolutely. When I um, when I first sort of came out as being non-monogamous, um, there was definitely some reticence, I think, in my family to sort of like accept that it wasn't just a phase. And there was there was a moment, I think, where I can't remember who it was. I, I think it might have been my sister, but but someone was sort of privately taking objection to the idea of of non-monogamy and that I should essentially like grow up and essentially like move on almost. Or maybe I'm just remembering the feelings I had and the assumptions I had about their position. But I distinctly remember them making a comment to the effect of like, well, like, yeah, sure, it's fun right now, but it's definitely not going to work like long term. Otherwise, why wouldn't everyone be doing that? (laughs) 
<laughs> and it just like exactly your sentiments of like when people are making that criticism, sometimes it's because of some observation or insecurity about their own desires or their own life. Right. And the I and I have a, a very easy response to that because people always, you know, when, when people say shit like that, I'm like, well, why are half of marriages ending in divorce? Right. You know, it's like, explain that. So. Yeah, it's like, I think we'd have a hard time doing worse than 50-50. And, and of course, that's, it's only 50-50 if you, if you don't consider all of the attempts at monogamous relationships that happen all around the world excluding marriage like if you just include all the monogamous attempts in those statistics mm -hmm. number of like percent success on attempted monogamous relationship is very low and it probably is the same for non-monogamous relationships yep possibly possibly and and i only say that as a as a science student because i have a hard time making claims if i if i don't feel like i have the evidence around it or i'll be very careful to flag my claim I think because of the amount of planning and conversation that go into non-monogamous relationships only because they're not already the default. I think by virtue of that alone, the people attempting them tend to have better developed communication and relationship skills, like per capita of people trying. But that's an assumption. I don't know that for fact. Right. But so I would I would suspect that non-monogamous relationships are at least as successful as monogamous relationships personally. Yeah, you know, it's, that that's always a, a tricky thing because, um, you know, I'm also a science student as well. You know, I'm a kinesiologist and it's uh, cool. I always I, I want I really, really want to know the data. Like if I could just, mm -hmm. I, no one's going to provide the money to do an exhaustive study on this sort of thing. But if I could <laughs> be, you know, omniscient for like a few minutes and, and learn this data, uh you know, the questions I would have is like, okay, well, how do we define success in a relationship? And, right. you know, that sort of thing, right? But uh, That's the first question, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think it was Dan Savage that had some pretty intense words about um, success isn't about whether or not a relationship continues. True, yeah. I'm not sure what the exact quote was, but I remember he talked about, I think he talked about, and this may be apocryphal, but I think he talked about his grandmother's relationship and how it was not in his eyes, a very healthy or positive relationship. And that, you know, it was considered, it was considered successful because she died while they were married. Like, like that was considered the, the yardstick of success, but you might have to Google the story because I don't remember it super clearly right now. Yeah, I mean, but that's something that I feel like I feel like all of us have seen examples of that where the relationship ended because of circumstances, not because the two people decided or two or more people decided this is run its course and let's stop, you know. Mm -hmm. And so the circumstances like, oh, this person got a job that moved them to another country. So the relationship ended. But we were good while we were together. Were you, though? <laughs> you know, were you? Right. Yeah. And I think to some extent, having relationships that end because of circumstance rather than because of choice are sometimes ones that you can probably consider successful if the two of you are functional and happy and able to communicate while you were together and you got your needs met. I often think of relationships as like a needs fulfillment strategy that humans use to exchange services or needs or yeah. 
something to that effect. I'm trying to think of a better word and I can't think of one. It'll come to you later, like at three in the morning. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but I typically think of them as a needs fulfillment strategy. And I typically think about needs in terms of um, Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication um, needs inventory. That That's typically how I, how I think about it. Although recently I've been enjoying a little bit more of um, Gottman's sound relationship house, even though it's based on monogamous marriage, it has a lot of really cool um, ideas in it. Um, the most popular one in pop psychology right now is the idea of turning towards your partner instead of turning away from your partner, which I think is just such an incredibly simple and effective way of looking at like, am I, am I making an attempt? Am I trying here? Am I, am I trying to build? Am I not trying to build? Yeah, sort of like is very important. That's that's one of the key words that I use whenever I am uh, defining what it means to be in a partnership. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, one thing that I consider something that I think defines a partnership is: Are we trying to build something together? What that mm-hmm. something may be is up to the individuals or the, the you know the people involved in the partnership. Uh, you know, so it could be literally building a house together it could be building a family together it could be just building a life together in two separate you know residences it could be um building a business together it could be a lot of things Mm -hmm. uh but some sort of building i think that and i and i say that because i hear so many people talking about partnership when they just happen to be dating a bunch like okay Mm -hmm. what else though right yeah. And I mean, that, that of course hits me right in my relationship anarchy feels where, you know, anarchy is not about the absence of rules, but is much more about be only, only obeying or recognizing rules that you have participated yourself in writing. Yep. That's sort of the way that I think of anarchy. And specifically when I think of relationship anarchy, that's sort of the model that I follow. It's, it's not that you aren't allowed to have labels it's that you acknowledge the fallibility of labels and the way that humans are just too complex and irreducible to be stuffed into these tiny boxes. And when you don't have easy labels, I mean, you kind of decide on like, sure, we can call each other partners for other people for the sake of ease and for the sake of clarity when talking with other people. But the, the more simplified you become as a person, the less accurate or granular that description is. Like you said, when you say, this is my partner, people have almost no information about that person other than you probably like them and you're probably doing something together, but you may literally just be business partners. Right, right. Yeah. That's probably a good note to wrap up this podcast. Did you have any other thoughts on burlesque identity or perception that you wanted to sort of squeeze in the last few minutes? I do. Uh, A lot of times... People are shocked when they meet me just, you know, wearing jeans and a T-shirt and I tell them that I'm a burlesque performer because they often have this image of what burlesque is or isn't. And I am not the image they have in their mind. Hmm. And so I always encourage them, um, especially for those people who ask me what is burlesque. And yes, that's the question I still get in, you know, in 2020. And I always encourage them. I say, you know what? You should go to a show. After you go to a burlesque show, go to a different burlesque show. Mm-hmm. Then after you go to two shows, go to a third show. 
And after you've gone to three shows, I hope that you'll have a better understanding as to what burlesque feels like to you, but, but you're not necessarily able to define it in a few sentences because mm -hmm. it's not always that simple. Uh, in, in any given show, if it's a proper review where uh, there's you know, you know, a lot of variety in the show, then in any one show with 10 or more acts, then you're, you should see a pretty broad spectrum of what burlesque is. Great. Well, thank you so much for being with me on the show today, Jet. Victor, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. So how was it, Intimates? Did you love something you heard, or maybe you're upset by something I said? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash interactions, or you can go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon, where you can find our Discord server. All of these communities are available on intimatepodcast.com, and I genuinely look forward to speaking with you soon. If you liked it, please consider helping us pay for show costs over at Patreon for as little as $1 per month. It's incredibly helpful. It's just a dollar a month. If you can afford it, we would hugely appreciate having your support. And hey, if that doesn't work for you, I completely understand. You can also help out by going to leave a review on iTunes or other favorite social media platform. Social proof like that helps so much with visibility and audience building. It helps other intimacy and relationship nerds find us. And if any of that just sounds like too much work, you can always do something really simple and it still goes a long way. Something like just tapping share and sending an episode that you liked, maybe a favorite, to a friend or partner, or maybe you can send them something you think they might really like. That's probably more considerate. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time and for your help in keeping us making more of Intimate Interactions. Oh yeah, I almost forgot. The intro music was Driving in the Rain by Timecrawler, and this outro music is Acoustic Blues by Jason Shaw. <laughs>